0: check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. I'm Jesse Puji, and today we're breaking down MongoDB. The MongoDB story traces back to 2007 when the founding team was running DoubleClick, a large ad tech business now owned by Google. They could not find an existing database software with the agility and scalability that the internet requires. Today, MongoDB has over 25,000 customers across 100 countries. To help me break down Mongo, I am joined by Ro Nagpal, an investor at Holocene Advisors. Listeners will recognize Ro from our breakdown of Twilio earlier this year. During our conversation, we get a 101 on database software. We talk through Mongo's creative approach to R&D. We'll learn about how database product advantage compounds and what protects Mongo from larger players like Microsoft and Amazon. Please enjoy this business breakdown of MongoDB. All right, welcome to Business Breakdowns. We have a super exciting conversation today and the special thing that's happening, our first return guest, one of my good friends, Ro Nagpal. Welcome, Ro.
1: Hey, Jesse. Glad to be back. Thanks for having me.
0: So the business that we are breaking down today is called MongoDB. So let's just start with the same question. What is MongoDB? And give us a sense for their scale, where they intersect in the world today.
1: MongoDB is a database company. They have about 29,000 customers. It's a little more than 800 million in revenues, growing 40% with really fast cloud business underneath there. And they sell a solution called a database, and we can get into what a database is. You can kind of think of a database as a sell sheet, so a basic list of rows and columns. So for example, when Jesse goes to Amazon and he clicks checkout, there's Jesse, Pooji, his address, what he's buying, and where it's getting shipped to his credit card information. And so a database is sort of underneath every piece of technology that you're using. So MongoDB sells the database.
0: Can you explain, for those who don't know, what is a database? And then maybe even zoom us out a little bit. And I know MongoDB is in big data trend. What is big data? Why does it matter? And maybe interweave that a little bit with their founding story.
1: A database is where some of our experiences store the necessary information. And it provides persistence. That means that the data is there when you turn your computer off. And when you turn your computer back on and you open the app up, that data is still there. So it's storing the information. And you can think about it as, again, like just a massive Excel sheet with rows and columns. And in the old world, this was a simple problem. An example I think about is, hey, you walk into Domino's. But 10 years ago, someone picks up the phone, they take your order, they grab your name, they put your address in your credit card information and what kind of pizza you want. And today, 20 million people at 7 o'clock pick up their phone, click an app and are trying to find a pepperoni pizza the problem's really different. It's almost like the old world problems, like a guy on a yellow legal pad writing it down. And the new world is you have 20 million people in a Google Docs all at the same time. And so like, you can quickly see those two problems require different sets of technology, they're different scales, they're different speeds. That's kind of the function that a database serves. If we zoom out, and we look at just the general trend of big data, let's just skip all the fluffy stuff, I'd say, The things that are really concrete are today, more than ever, you leave a lot of digital breadcrumbs on every single thing you do. Every time you pick up an app, every time you click part of an app, every time your mouse hovers on part of a website, every company that has that digital front end as part of their business, they can service their customers better if they like process, aggregate, analyze, think about that data and do it smarter than their competition. And I think the things that's really powerful about that idea is. Before, let's say you're running a marketing program. 5 years ago, 10 years ago, you'd take that information, you'd pump it into some sort of big mainframe, and you'd crunch out and say, hey, send these mailers to like, the guys in St. Louis. Today, it's like, oh, I kind of tweaked the website a little bit, and in the next 30 seconds, I saw the game. Big data has so much value because we all live online, because there's so many breadcrumbs. If you make the changes in real time, you can see big returns quick. The last underlying foundational layer is storage and compute because AWS got real cheap. So you can keep all this stuff and think about it and play with it and see if there's anything valuable there where that wasn't possible back years ago.
0: Oracle is famously known to have developed the database in the early days. And I want you to tell us a little bit about the founding story of Mongo in terms of in the classic entrepreneur sense. What was the unmet market need or product need? Talk to us a little bit about SQL versus NoSQL and sort of how big data plays into that. And what was that insight that they had that made this such a... you know It's an $800 million company today. So Where did it start? How did it start? And what was that unique insight that drove it?
1: Let's start with Oracle and how databases, the origin of databases. So Oracle is like almost 40 years old, I think. And so the database that Oracle sells is called a relational database. Relational databases are like really good for information that's very structured, where it has the relationships that you're going to define. And it's great for that calling the Domino's guy who enters the information into his computer one at a time. And when you want to make that system more powerful, you buy a bigger computer, like a bigger, expensive, more powerful computer. It's really accurate. So it doesn't mess up. So you don't want to mess up someone's credit card information or let's say their tax information or social security number. So you put it in a relationship. All right. So then you fast forward. Mongo's founded in 2007.
0: Before you go on, like how big is an Oracle database? Well, you say credit card numbers.
1: I'd say a lot of banking information runs on Oracle databases. I'd say big order systems for Walmart would run on Oracle.
0: So they presumably already had billions or hundreds of millions of pieces of data in these databases.
1: Correct. They're obviously the market leader. The world that Oracle dominates is kind of a $70 billion camp, growing 8%. The founders of MongoDB Dwight Merriman, Elliot Horwitz, and Kevin Ryan, they were working at DoubleClick, ad tech company. They sort of come across this problem of web scale that they can't find a solution to their web scale problem in the Oracle database. It's like the square in a round peg. And so they realize that they have to build something new. And the thing that's really hard about an Oracle database or SQL database is you kind of need to know how all well the information is going to interact at the beginning and what information you want. So you can think about it as a set of tables within tables. So let's stick with our pizza ordering example. I got a list of customers. I got your name, Jesse, Puji. Then I got what kind of pizza you're ordering. Then I got your cell phone number. And then I have your address. Okay, now I add a second customer and he gives me his cell phone number and his home number. Then I add a fourth customer and he gives me his cell, his home and his office. Now we're changing all of these parameters, and the database has got to grow and shrink. And every time you do that, the relationship of how that database interacts with the other pieces, they get complicated. And so you can think about like the Oracle world is like, okay, I got one master database. Then in it, there's a little database just for your name and phone numbers. Then there's another little database for your name and your address. Then there's another one for like the name and type of pizza. Once you like multiply this times a hundred and all the SKUs maybe at a company, those relationships get very, very complex and they get very brittle. A good example would say, okay, we used to only sell pepperoni pizza. Now we sell cheese and veggies. Recreate the whole sausage and it's a disaster. So these guys that found Mongo, they realized we need a better structure that scales. And so they come up with something called a document database. A good parallel for a document database is a Word file. So in an Excel sheet, everything fits into rows and columns. But in a Word file, you can write whatever data you want in whatever order you want. And so it's just a lot easier for a developer to build and think about that unit.
0: What does big data mean? Why does someone call MongoDB big data versus kind of the old way of doing
1: it? I think the scale at which, I don't know if we looked at the total scale of Mongo and how much information relative to Oracle, but I I think the scale of problems that you can solve is materially larger and the speed at which you solve them. For example, if you can also scale Mongo dynamically, Let's say you uh, you know, everyone on the planet's ordering a piece of around the Super Bowl, you just grab more commodity units from AWS during that moment. And then once you're done taking all the orders, you give them right back. And so the idea that it it scales dynamically, effectively to infinity for all intents and purposes, is an element of a big data solution. And then you can kind of think about, I'll just like throw out some examples. So weather.com uses. MongoDB to store all the weather information. And then the developers all build several different applications off of it. So there's one weather.com, there's another one for tracking thunderstorms and tornadoes, blah, blah, blah. They're using the same building block, And so every time a developer comes up with a new idea to please customers, he doesn't need to go build a new database. That's a powerful idea. ADP, if you have an ADP app for your payroll, that app is working off of a MongoDB database. So you can think about like whatever, the millions and millions of people that get their ADP payroll that are checking every day. It's, it's running off of MongoDB. I don't think you would find somebody who's building like an at scale mobile app being like, oh, I built this on Oracle.
0: Let's talk about I mean, the ADP one is an interesting example because they're also kind of an older company. I know you don't actually know, but what do you think would lead them to say, I don't want Oracle anymore now. I want this MongoDB solution.
1: That mobile experience and for the developers to create it, is a lot faster, cleaner, easier with Mongo. And so like I think this goes back to the idea, we've talked about this several times, that right now the developer is the scarce resource. So if you can reduce the amount of undifferentiated work so that developers only doing the high impact work to keep the customer happy, to create the best app, to make sure that you're getting your payroll as you want it, that means that the customer is happier. I think ADP picked Mongo because Mongo worked across 17 geographies. 17 different countries, lots of different languages across several of their applications. And so it's like that kind of breadth, ease of use that allows their team to go faster is why they picked it for is my guess at why they picked it for, um, for the mobile product.
0: One last primer question is you talked about weather.com. When you think about the technology stack that exists inside of one of these businesses, what does that typically look like?
1: I think the easiest way to think about it is a layer cake. At the bottom of the layer okay, is a really basic piece of storage. In the consumer world, it's like a thumb drive. For businesses, it's a big, big thumb drive. On top of that is a CPU, like something that actually does the crunchings so that has the Intel chip inside of it. It's got an AWS unit of compute. And then on top of that, there's a database. And the database is reading from that piece of storage or the zeros and ones that comprise Jesse's order. Then that database is talking to a front end, so it's talking to an application where, oh, Jesse's got a phone on his hand, he's clicking the picture of the pizza or an order or the payroll in the ADP case. Oh, he clicked this, let me go pull that information, show him the estimated time of delivery or when he's going to get his payroll. So that's kind of like the stack you can think about. Something storing the zeros and ones, something processing the zeros and ones, a piece of software that's interacting with those pieces of hardware, and then the front end thing, which is what your eyeballs see.
0: That's awesome. That's super helpful. And on the front end, you mentioned the Domino's example, which really resonates. It used to be that you called in, you gave someone, now a bunch of people are sitting there on an app. What are a couple other examples that would probably not be possible without MongoDB type solution or a NoSQL type solution?
1: Let's think about a video game. Video games are interesting examples because they have so many different types of data use cases. So if you play a default online, that runs on Mongo. So think about your experience of a video game. You log in, there's a username and a password. So that database is slow. It's just got Jesse, Pooji, ABC123. And it doesn't really change a lot. Okay, then there's the database within that of every single team and all the players. Okay, that might be changing as there are trades made. Okay, then you buy a new jersey. Then there's like a credit card system that's got to talk. There's this whole system that's got to store your credit card information. It's got to talk to a bank. It's got to do that in real time. Maybe there is a system that says, hey, after you buy something, I'm gonna send you a little loyalty discount of 10% for your next buy." Then there's like a marketing system that's got a marketing database in it. You start stacking these things together and you can quickly see, oh wow, there's like 35 use cases for a database here. And they all kind of have different flavors. And so I think Mongo's scale and like what the management team has done exceptionally well is they've enabled the solution to address lots and lots of those data use cases. So there is an IoT platform for this fleet of wind turbines in Norway. There's like 7,000 wind turbines there. And it ingests 25,000 data points a second. And basically, it can figure out when there's ice starting to build on a turbine blade. And then it says, hey, go clean up that ice before like the turbine rolls off. So that kind of information is getting sent to Mago.
0: So it's faster, cheaper, it's more granular with, with regards to how the data gets collected. You mentioned earlier that the Oracle on-premise, old school, let's call them databases, that's like $70 growing at 8%. Can you give people listening a sense for the marketplace of database? I assume it's a unique and complex market. And then specifically, then how does Mongo compete in that marketplace?
1: I think about the world as it's called mature and new. The mature world is sort of Oracle, which dominates $70 billion on-premise database market. Then there's like, Hey, I'm Domino's. I'm writing the new app. that's going to the cloud. That, let's just call that new to be simple. And so in that new world, what you're finding is Mongo is taking a disproportionate amount of the next hundred applications that are written. Here are some ways to think about it. have done a lot of developer polling and almost 30% of them had built something on Mongo in the last 12 months, which is a crazy stat. And so you would think like, oh, the next... 100 things that are built in the cloud, like Mongo's probably getting 30. And some of those are repeat. And then after they build it, they'll probably build the next and the second and third and fourth and fifth thing. So that's, how, that's one way to think about where this market share could be heading.
0: How big is the new market? How fast is it growing? And who are the other big competitors?
1: My guess is that the new market is... I don't know how big it is today. I think if you said in 10 years, it'll be roughly $200 billion. And it'll be half old world and half new stuff so let's call it 100 billion in both pockets i think it's also important to stress that the database market today is a 70 billion dollar market you know in the future it'll be 200 and oracle has been doing this for 40 years and only generates 17 billion of revenue so there's still a lot of room to run for multiple competitors so now who are the competitors so aws has a database they have several databases for each one of the flavors like a slow database, a fast database, a number-crunching database. Aurora is a really popular database on Amazon. Amazon has a MongoDB copycat where they try to recreate that document database. you get to know that. Azure has databases. Google has databases. Snowflake is a database that is used for a very specific data warehouse, big number-crunching, really fast kind of use case. It's a big fragmented market right now, which is why like this is such an important market and company because once you build the application on the database, it's pretty painful to like move to anything else. So if I just said, Hey, Jesse, you're building a new Domino's app, build it on my cloud database. And then the next guy comes along and says, I'll give you a 10% discount or a 20% discount. You'd probably say no. Oracle's churn is 2%. The lowest churn you can find in tech, right?
0: It sounds like this marketplace has a lot of different players doing a lot of different things. I don't want to use the word commoditized, but There's a lot of people who you can get database software for. What makes Mongo so distinct and why is it winning?
1: I think there are a couple of things about Mongo and some decisions that the team has made over the years that have really put them out front. So the first is just that architectural choice to be a document database that we talked about earlier. So that uniquely positions the solution for this next generation of apps that are being built. By the way, the next generation of apps being built, there's something like Microsoft talks about. 500 million apps being built over the next couple of years. Second is it's open source. So a lot of people can download it, try it out, build a prototype real quick for their boss and see how it goes before committing to a big contract. And so I think what that did was that seeded the market and got developer attention. If you talk to developers or read any of the developer feedback, it's just consensus that it's like the easiest to use cloud database. That developer ease of use made it the standard for NoSQL databases. And then additionally, they made the product, as they added new features, the product addressed a broader range of issues, problems and needs and use cases, like, for example, the video case, use case that we walked through. And so that breadth of applicability, I think made it a very easy choice for a lot of people. And then the last thing is the storage engine, which is sort of how the code talks to the underlying storage is uniquely powerful. I'd say if you had a bad storage engine, then only one person could edit the information at the same time. If you have a great storage engine, multiple people can be moving super fast on the database. Just think about one person in Excel versus a hundred in a Google Docs, all making changes.
0: In my head, I go, Oracle built the database for the PC or the computer. And then these guys came along and said, given their early internet experience and said, what would be the database that you'd need for the internet to run internet applications, and that's kind of what Mongo is. Is that a fair way to think
1: about it? Exactly.
0: I want to shift a little bit to their business now and how this shows up in the numbers. I'm curious what you think. First, what are the most important metrics and numbers for this business, and then maybe if you can walk us through the PNL just to give us a sense for their margins, how they spend money, and so on and so forth.
1: So it's really important as the precursor to this. For a long time, the vast majority of their product was sold on-premise. So people would buy a license of MongoDB, they'd buy a server, they'd hire a guy, they'd plug it into the wall and install MongoDB, and they would build their application on-premise. The last, let's call it three or four years, they've really transitioned, by this year it'll be the majority of the business, to a cloud database product called Atlas. And so that is the most important part of the business because that is where the future is. Atlas is approaching $500 million this year out of total company revenue of $800 million. Last quarter, it grew 80%. So this is accelerating. As you know, a company that's been around since 2007 and it's accelerating. They have 29,000 customers, as we mentioned, and just really lock in this idea of the long tail and how powerful their cloud strategy is. This year, they're on pace to add 8,000 new customers. If you rewind three or four years ago, they added... 3,500. So you have this company that's been around for a while and their cloud strategy is just exploding the top of the funnel. The total subscription revenue of the business is roughly $800 million. The total revenue is growing roughly 40% with obviously the cloud piece growing considerably faster. You can kind of extrapolate from there. This is like a gross oversimplification, but on average, average customer spends $27,000 a year. There's some that are spending millions and some that are spending very little. The gross margins of the business are around 72%, and they're close to break even, slightly negative.
0: In that gross margin, you and I obviously did Twilio, and we said that they had a lower one because they had to pay out the telecom providers. What are the big items in their cost of sales? And then I know sales and marketing is a huge chunk of their revenue. So can you talk a little bit about that?
1: In gross margins, if you just downloaded the MongoDB code and ran it in your own building, that obviously is crazy high margin. And But if they run the cloud, service, the cloud database for you on AWS, they have to pay that cost to AWS. An important thing to consider in that is you no longer have the person in your building that is running around stitching together the server and the storage and putting the MongoDB on top. So they've fully optimized that so you don't have to spend time or resources on it. And every time they make a change or roll out a new feature, you don't need to have someone go update it. They just updated it in the cloud. So boom, tomorrow you have that new feature if you want it. Or if there's a security problem, they can also do that instantly. So you think about their sales and marketing spend, there are all the costs of marketing to get those freemium users. And then there's a sophisticated enterprise Salesforce. So they'll say, hey, Jesse launched this new clothing app. And he started off free from the website. But boy, it looks like his data usage is growing. Let's have a really good rep who works in retail called Jesse and make sure he knows that we're here to support him as his e-commerce business explodes and show him these new features.
0: Got it. It's a 55%. I mean, you look across these businesses all day. Can you confirm that's on the high end? And then I'm curious for you as an investor, when do you go gosh, that's high, stop doing that. And when do you go, no, 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 I'm glad you're doing that. I'm happy you're doing that. Like help us understand how you think about a business like that.
1: So MongoDB actually spends 45% of sales and marketing, not 55%. But I think right now there's whatever, 150 or 200 software companies in the public landscape. It's enormous. And you can find every flavor of sales and marketing. You can find the people trying to squeeze the pains out and you can find the people that are burning it as fast as they can. I think about it as, hey, if you're spending a dollar today to acquire 10, I'm totally comfortable with it. And I think the inputs to that you would think about as, what's the churn look like after they get you on? Okay, I know a database churn is really low. Okay, what's the gross margin structure after they get you on and keep you on? Okay, I know the gross margin structure is healthy. Okay, how many other things can they sell you after you start? Okay, I see why you're going to keep growing with MongoDB. So it's really efficient sales and marketing spend. You want them to be spending at this clip.
0: You talked a lot about MongoDB's PNL. Can you give us a sense for the unit economics in the business?
1: It's got really low churn. We don't know exactly what it is, but you can safely assume under 5%. The same store sales is 20 to 25%. The base grows at that clip every year. It costs them roughly thirty dollars or $40,000 to acquire a logo, which likely has a lifespan of decades. And they have gross margins in the low 70s today.
0: Say they acquire a customer for $30,000. How do you think about the growth? And you mentioned, obviously, customer was decades long, but how does it grow after they've acquired them?
1: There's two ways that it grows. One is in your e-commerce app, you do 5% more sales every year. And so you use 5% more of Mongo in that way. In the second is after you launch e-commerce app one, you launch the second one for Soccer, and then you watch the third one for Spain. And so, as you create more workloads on their platform, those new use cases are like new projects, and they grow that way as well.
0: When you look at some of these items in the PNL, like sales and marketing, R and D, on our first podcast, we talked about Jeff and some of the smart investments he was making. What are some distinctive things that show up here that you go, "This is a really smart thing people don't realize they're doing," or "This is a really unique way they're spending their money and their resources."
1: I would go to that top of the funnel. I would say that they made a series of acquisitions that really helped them figure out this go-to-market motion. So five years ago, the business used to be, hey, fancy enterprise rep calls Jesse and says, oh, I I heard through the grapevine. You're thinking about building an e-commerce app. You need a database. And by investing those sales and marketing dollars into the top of the funnel to create breadth of user base, buying basically a bunch of call-offs, So they'll pay for you to use to get your e-commerce up up and running. But then when they call you, it's a warm lead. You've already used the product. You're happy. You like it. You're growing really fast. How much easier and more efficient is that sale than the sale five years ago? And this is like the fruit of five years of work to get A, the product functionality there, and then B, the sales and marketing motion there. If you think about the beginning of that journey, it's get the developer hook. That means you got to have a great product. That means you got to be out marketing developers. Okay. Get him using it. All right. After he's using it, one out of the 10 have built something really big, put an A-plus person on him. And don't have the A-plus person try and get a million dollars out of him on day one. Just have the A-plus person, have him be really successful for the first six months. And then nurture that. There's this really long runway of growth. And zoom out today, only 20% of workloads are on the cloud. So you've got literally 10 or 15-year unit runway that's going to grow as workloads move to cloud. And so I think they've just been very thoughtful about that go-to-market motion. And it's not an easy thing to do because it's a combination of product and sales and marketing. Those two engines working together. In some ways, it's actually a moat for Mongo to be starting in this motion and then moving up market. If you think about Oracle trying to go build a light-touch, open-source web-based distribution model, it's probably pretty tough to do that.
0: Yeah. Super interesting. You mentioned obviously they're open source. Can you talk about the difference of how that shows up in businesses and business models and software, and then talk about how they've chosen to do it and why it matters and and give us just a sense for that, how that affects their business?
1: So this is a spider web of complexity and I'm not an open source expert. So I'll give you my sort of layman's understanding. There's two kinds of open source. There's one kind of open source that says, hey, we're going to get a 1,000 people to work on this. We'll all kind of vote as a community and that'll kind of determine what the features are. And then there's another kind of open source, which is the type that Mongo is, which is, hey, we're going to build it, but we're going to open our technology up to the world. Anyone can use it. Jesse can download it and use it and he doesn't need to pay us. If he turns it a commercial and he wants to build something big and he wants to make sure that when his e-commerce app goes down, he can call someone, he'll pay us. And if you want the latest and greatest features and security and serve all these enterprises, that's Mongo's business model. Now, if you look at like what Amazon did, Amazon said, oh, we'll just download your code and we'll build the document database off your code. And what Mongo did, again, without using all the acronyms and terminology, they changed their open source licensing, which said, that's great. You want to do that? No problem. But as a part of open source, any changes you make to the source code, you have to give back to the community inclusive of any code that you use to run our code. So if Amazon is running AWS infrastructure using Amazon proprietary code, and then they co-mingle that with the Mongo code to run a new service, legally, they're obligated to open up, to share both parts back. You can imagine that AWS is not really interested in sharing their secret sauce. And so what you can see is Mongo's business was not at all impacted from those changes that AWS made.
0: And was that change controversial at all? or Did it have any negative impact on their business with the developer community?
1: Super controversial. Open source is a very passionate community and you got to treat it respectfully. The population that was kind of up in arms about this change, but it didn't impact the business because I think it just came back to, look, developers are short on time. They're trying to solve the problem. They're picking the best to solve the problem. And so you didn't actually see any impact on Mongo's business from that change.
0: You and I, Ro, have talked online and offline about what makes a great software business, especially in the new world of cloud and SaaS? And there are certain themes that have constantly come up. Usage-based pricing, great developer relationships, easy to get started, and then expansion from there. And there's probably more. I'm curious where you think MongoDB stacks on that zero to 10, what you'd give it. What is a one thing that they do is very special or distinctive in that regard versus any other company you look at? And then what's an area where you think they could be even
1: better? Look, I think the elements of the next gen of software winners, they have a lot of those attributes. So let's go through them. One, they seem to have won the developer. So the most scarce resource they've captured and they're solving a really important problem for them. They have this low touch distribution. You want to use the product, you don't need to talk to anybody. You can literally just go to the website with a credit card, get gone. And they've open source. So you don't even need a credit card. You can start for free. They're riding this incredible unit curve. So they're riding workloads, moving out of data centers to the cloud, and we're only, I don't know, 15 20% of the way there. And by the way, after they're all there, or after you get to the maturity point, it'll grow at GDP plus. It's like the business will never grow zero. They have very low churn because it's a database we talked about. So let's assume under 2% churn. And they've made this architectural bet, which has proven to be right, which is a really big moat. There's like a decade of advanced product feature development along that bet that is correct, is just very hard for anyone to catch up to. I think what they've done uniquely well is they have gotten the product to fit the need, the product market fit, and then like an amazing go-to-market motion behind that. So you sort of have both things who are working really well. And we should sort of go into the background of how they did that. And what do I think they could do better... I think it's kind of a question of, okay, after I get inside a big bank ABC that's got thousands of applications, how do I reduce the friction after they move the first 10 for them to go move the next 90? How do I speed up that process of sort of rewriting your old stuff to the new stuff? And I would guess it's a lot of chipping away at the problem. Oh, there's this part that costs an extra week. There's that thing that costs an extra month. So let's just keep working down that list. So we can go grab all these workloads that we know are coming to us as fast as we can.
0: So there's two things that really came through when when you said that. One was they made this architectural or product bet and they were right. The second one is they really got a strong go-to-market motion behind it. So I want to double click into both of those. So let's start with the architecture product decision. I know you're not an architect or an engineer, but can you talk a little bit about maybe comparing them to another database company that didn't get it right Why were they so right? And maybe it's about leadership or some other things, but I'm curious to know why, how did they get it so right? Or what did they get so right?
1: I think it goes back to that document databases are just very well suited for what is being built. They scale, they're super easy to work with, they're flexible, you can change your mind, you can launch a new product, you can add fields. And it's also more intuitive in how you write to it versus a relational database. And all of those things come together to have won the developer mind and be winning market share. And this thing kind of compounds. You do go to company A, developers are a scarce resource. They're moving around companies super fast. They go to company B and guess what he's using the same thing. And so I think that architectural bet has paid off in several ways.
0: Redis, I know is another database people use. Is there something out there that go, you know what? They kind of missed it because they I don't know, they try to make it look too much like Oracle's. Or I'm curious if, if there's an example of one that just made the wrong choice.
1: So there's so many problems within a database. You're solving speed, you're solving security, you're solving centralization. They all made slight trade-offs on each one of those variables. And I think the fact that there's not many public, there are other public database companies, there are not many that are growing at this clip would tell you that these bets have played out to be the right ones for the market. And you could see this backed up in data market share data, I don't really know the nuances of like all the architectural bets that the other guys made that flopped.
0: Let's talk about the go-to-market motion you mentioned. So what is it there that you think they really nailed?
1: Yeah, actually, I think a lot of this goes back to the current CEO, Dev. And if you go back through his history, he's super successful, super young. He took a company public during the dot-com bubble. I think he probably learned a lot about how to get a company ready to be a, a big public entity and exist in that public light and what it looks like to not be ready. And then he started a second company, I think soon after, and sold it the day that Bear Stearns actually went under. He sold PlayLogic to, to BMC for $800 million or something. And so in that, I think he really learned great fit between the product development team and the sales and marketing team looks like. As I look back over the last four or five years of Mongo, you can see that they've taken all of these steps and made several moves, which at the time, like you kind of scratch your head, but they've sort of come together in this beautiful fit where we can see all this real-time feedback online of the features that people are using and the features they're not using. Let's go talk to the people that aren't using it. Let's make sure that the development team like understands that. Here's a big data company using the big data of their usage to iterate the prospect. Now imagine you have a small database company. You don't have that many reps. You don't get the breath to see like, Oh, this feature is working. Oh, that feature is working. Oh, it turns out everyone needs a weather feature. Oh, everyone's asking. 80% of my customers want mapping functionality. So we're going to add the mapping. So you can imagine that Flywheel builds faster if you have a bigger database. So your product advantage can keep compounding on itself. When Dev got to um, Mongo was a mess, it's probably seven years or so ago. I think he's cleaned up both of those organizations and they're working well together. And the output of that Flywheel is the company that today.
0: So cool to hear that and understand it. When you look a little further out, you go 5 or 10 years, these guys have more market share, they've grown bigger, faster, their market cap may be double what it is. What happened? What were the things that really went right for them?
1: I think it's they just kept doing what they are doing. Of the next 100 things, applications that come up, they're taking a disproportionate share. I think they just need to keep compounding on that sales and marketing top of final motion and tying it well with the product side. That's one for everything that's new. And I think the second vector you might add is, can they make it very easy and attractive for someone to come into Jesse's 50-year-old retailer and say, hey, you have all this old stuff that's sitting on premise. Let me help you get it to the cloud where it'll be better for you. And I'll do it for you. You'll pay me a dollar and you'll pay Mongo 30 cents. And at the end of it, you'll have a better setup. You gotta think about the world in both the old workloads and the new workloads. There's a whole other leg to the story, but they can really get that old migration up. But that's not really how we've been framing it here.
0: And market-wise, obviously the internet has to keep being the internet. We assume it will. Are there other like market factors that will be important for them to double in size or for them, you know, market cap doubles?
1: Let's take an extreme view. You would need to believe that a database that is very broad and addresses the 80-20 rule, 80% of use cases can win, you could be extreme and say, well, look, in our video game example, we're going to use a different database for every single one of those sub-use cases. So the username and login, that goes into a slow database. The one that does the credit card transaction, that goes into a super secure database. The one that does the marketing, that'll go into a snowflake database. You might have that view of the world that for each of those use cases, there will be a specialized Player. And so you'll cobble together 10 of these. That's possible.
0: Is M&A an
1: opportunity for them? The MA they've done has been one was Wired Tiger, which is around that storage engine we talked about before. They did one to help them really get the go to market motion of online customer acquisition right and how to run database as a service. When they took that over, that's obviously a different business. They bought a company called Amlab to do that. So it seems to have always been around like a targeted function or skill set. As far as the product's expansion goes, the vast majority of that's been organic. I don't see the obvious m and I'm sure there is some, but I don't see it.
0: And what about the flip side of this question? So if they're in 10 years, market cap's cut in half, business is losing market share, it's not working, either market-wise or them-wise, what went wrong? What are the big risks here?
1: The obvious big risk is every big hyperscale player, Google, Amazon, Microsoft offers several flavors of database. That's clear. The second one would be maybe there's a tech shift in how applications are written, puts them in a tough spot. I don't see it at the moment, but tech changes fast. and That's always possible.
0: One thing you've mentioned a few times is that two of the largest, most successful software and businesses on the planet, Microsoft and Amazon have competitive database technologies. An obvious question: Why is Mongo still exist in that world, or why? You know, how do they survive in that world?
1: There's a couple answers to that. Both Microsoft and Amazon have document databases. Now, the people that work on the next iteration of that document database there do not live, breathe, and sleep databases. So naturally, the smartest database minds. For cloud database in a document database are all at MongoDB. So there's a little bit of just hey the products iterating faster, and I can prove that to you with data. So if you looked at developer comments and questions on the Amazon document database versus the Mongo database, you could clearly see like they're miles apart on adoption. So that's quantitative comment. And then the second thing you'd say is oh there's a value to being Switzerland. Anyone who signed up for maybe an IBM database and has had the price raised on them twenty times over the last forty years knows. If they go 100% all in on Microsoft or Amazon, they run that risk. If they put their data, their compute, their app, everything lives there, they're signing up in the future to potentially that risk. So by having MongoDB as the database layer that's Switzerland, you can run it on Amazon, you can run it on Microsoft or other clouds, you are hedging that risk. What if Microsoft doesn't have a region in this corner of Brazil, but Google does? You can get that geographic footprint product speed and quality of evolution. And then there's like a value to being Swiss on.
0: You know, the last questions here, we kind of asked three lessons for builders, lessons for investors, and then places for further study. So let's just take them one at a time. When you look at this story, if you're an executive or an entrepreneur out there, what's the big lesson?
1: One of the lessons is obviously like cater to the scarce resource. The scarce resource is the developer and the IT organization. If you make them more efficient, they will love you. And that will lead to a great business. Two is they made this move to the cloud product. This company wasn't born in the cloud. So they made this move to the the cloud, which there's not a lot of infrastructure companies that have done that successfully. They massively expanded their TAM. Before, they were just competing in that on-premise world. And in the cloud world, they're getting the dollar that you used to pay for the person to run around and plug stuff in. So the TAM is much bigger because they captured that sort of spend. But it's also bigger because now they're selling to customers in India that they never put a sales guide from. Getting the product right, getting the distribution right together, you can create markets that are way bigger than all we think. So that's what I would stress.
0: And for investors, what are the lessons?
1: It's funny. It's I think it's almost the same lesson. It's very easy to say, Oh, I've seen this before. This is a database. The market looks like that other database that I know. It's been around for 40 years you kind of peel back the onion. You're like, wait a minute, this is a totally different market with totally different attributes, growth rates, sizing, and ultimately what it may look like. I think it's that same idea, really understanding what the market is, understanding why they're winning, and then like the leading indicators. And so they've captured the scarce resources. If you were early in figuring that out, you could kind of see this story playing out the year, year and a half come.
0: Is there something here on this one I want to poke just because you mentioned the company was a mess and then the CEO dev came in, like, is there a lesson around management or could someone have predicted this when he came in? Or why wasn't it on track to do this before he came in?
1: If I was smart, I would have gone back and like read his whole bio at the time, but I totally missed that one. I think you went back into his past and like dug around why they picked him to run the company. Boards don't change CEOs when things are going great. You could see that he had like a very unique background that was well-suited for why it was messy. I'll tell you a funny story on this. But when it was private, I remember being at one of the user conferences in New York City. The CEO at the time gets up on stage and says, man, we have built something amazing. You guys love us. It's incredible, but you don't pay us much. And I just remember thinking, I was like, wow, I'd never heard a CEO say that on stage at one of his events. That doesn't sound very good. <laughs> I think when Dev came in, he got the product right. that all the problem for his customers. And then he put a great sales marketing Machine together, and those two flywheels hit because clearly before they had a lot of developer love, but they couldn't get it, the dollars behind it. And just to put a stat around that, from two thousand seven to like twenty twenty, they had a hundred million downloads of the product. In the last twelve months, they've had another hundred million downloads of the product.
0: Wow! Let's say something.
1: What a crazy idea! Crazy,
0: yeah people want to learn more about databases, Mongo, where would you guide them to do further study?
1: You can really go down the rabbit hole on YouTube. If you Google document database versus relational database, you should definitely go through some of the MongoDB user events. They've got a lot of good stuff on their website.
0: All right, Ro. Well, we completed number two and it was just as awesome, if not better. Thanks so much for coming on Business Breakdowns.
1: Thanks for having me, Jesse.
0: I hope you enjoyed this Business Breakdown about MongoDB. Two things really stood out to me. One was the founding story and how MongoDB was an internet-first database software. Two was how important leadership is for any business, even one with great moats and potential like MongoDB. I can't wait to see how the industry will change in the coming years and how MongoDB will respond.